Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the hacking team fallout continues as there's a whole new batch of zero-day patches you need to install. A vulnerability against RC4 might finally kill it, and then how to protect yourself from a denial-of-service attack. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, our answers, our rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 223 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on July 16th, 2015. This episode's brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream... Wow, that's powered by Scale Engine. You should go check that out over at scaleengine.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jute. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Alan, I'm excited about today. Uh, this is uh, usually, almost every time we're recording uh, ahead of time, we're recording ahead of time because you're traveling, because you travel all the time. And yep. so usually I'm like, okay, Alan, have a good time. Enjoy your trip. However, this <laughs> week we are double recording because I'm going on a trip. I'm going down to Portland, Oregon next week, and I'll probably be traveling back up during Thursday day because we're going to be down there Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And so I'll be on the road at OSCON, and uh, so we're going to be recording two episodes, and I'm excited to get to go, to, to go, to get to go down there, because not only is Noah flying out with his family and kids, and we're going to stay at, the, at, a, at, a, at like a great place for kids with a water park and everything like that, but then the dads are going to head out, or maybe, I think Ange might become, we're not sure on the details there, but some of us will head out and go down to OSCON, uh, which is mm-hmm. going to be really cool. Uh, it's, it's going on July 20th through the 24th. We're going to be there July 22nd, Noah and I. And, uh, in fact, if you want to get in and get, like, just get an expo pass, they're only like 50 bucks, and you can get 20% off, I think it is, if you use our promo code Linux. You can get 20% off any of their passes. But we have a promo code to help people get in there. Um, nice. Yeah, at OSCON. So that's pretty cool. But what we're doing is we have a, an official meetup. If you're a TechSnap fan and uh, want to come say hi to me or uh, say hi to Noah, say uh, maybe have a beer or a burger with us, why not come meet up with us? Go to meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for details. After OSCON at 5 p.m., we're going to meet just a little bit south, I think it is, of the Expo Hall. Right now it's the Spirit of 77 Bar, but we're, we, it may change. So go to meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for Wednesday, July 22nd. That's next week. If you'd like to meet up, it'd be great to see you guys. We haven't had really much of a chance to mention in the TechSnap show, so I want to get a chance to plug it. Mm-hmm. Because it's always cool to say hi to people. And right now, I think we have like uh, eight people. So there's six days left to go sign up, and we have eight people going right now, which isn't a bad crowd. But if we got a big crowd, we could rent their upstairs area, which would be pretty cool. So let us know mm-hmm. if you're going to make it. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting and promo code Linux if you want to get an OSCON ticket. And you know who might just be yes, at Ox- OSCON? Because they go to like Who's all that? of the things. Of course, it's our yes, friends over things. at iX Systems. Uh, let's start yes. off by thanking iX Systems, and then we're going to dig into the big news this week. Uh, go to iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That way you support the TechSnap program and get to learn a little bit more about iX Systems. That's where Alan and I buy our hardware from. Now, of course, I only have a few rigs, but Alan, he has quite the build-out now. And aren't you working on some monster right now? Yes. Uh, we're just finalizing the details on getting three more servers from iX. Uh, that will be monstrous. <laughs> Three monsters. Capacity. Really? Yeah. Are you going to tease me at all with the specs? Come on. Tease me with yeah, the specs. I'm, I'm adding up the storage because <laughs> the numbers are so big I can't do it in my head. Okay. All right. Oh, I love it. Got the- uh, 456 terabytes of storage between the three. Mm, 400 terabytes, 456 terabytes. Wow. Yes. And, and I, I assume a mix of a bunch of different types of disks? Uh, well, that, that that was all just the spinning disks. Uh, I didn't <laughs> include the. There's like a couple hundred gigs of SSDs in each oh, one, okay. just for, for OS and so yeah, on. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. 
well, we're not doing any fancy stuff like uh, a cache or anything mm-hmm. because it's all video files, so it's uh, all big linear reads and, and everything will be fine anyway. Uh, but yeah, the one is uh, 36 six terabyte helium drives oh, for geez. some serious production stuff. Yeah, uh, and then the other two are um, uh, backup servers, and so they're uh, 24 SATA drives each, hmm. uh, and those are all five terabyte drives. <laughs> Wow, and then they're, so they're going to build them, test them. They'll do the, they'll do a burn in before they ship them. The white glove from yeah. from pre purchase to post purchase, and then they're going to ship them to you to your data centers, aren't yep. they? Well, yeah, they're, they're actually going to organize the shipping to go directly to the data center for me, and uh, you know handle all the special handling that involves, including putting special information, including like ticket numbers and and you know which rack to put it in and so on. Uh, they handle installing the OS and everything on it, so mm-hmm. that when it gets to the data center, the guys just have to put it in the rack, plug in the cables, and they're done. Uh, you know, that's not something you get other places. No. They're not going to be able to custom install the version of FreeBSD I want exactly how I want it. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's a level of support you're not going to get other places. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's and it's it's they're the, they're also the, they're the same folks behind great projects that you know about like uh, FreeNAS and uh, PCBSD and they really are a great part of the community. That's why I'm excited to say hi to them at OSCON. I would love yes. you, I'd love you to go learn more and also keep our show on the air and support us and make our sponsor happy by going to ixsystems.com/techsnap. They have a white paper there. This is really great too if you want to maybe switch hardware vendors, you want to switch to somebody who's actually going to back that initiative. It's going to support you and somebody who's going to make sure you get the right product for that job. And then when it's an open yeah. source solution, they're going to understand it from top to bottom, go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Check them out, and a big thanks to ixsystems for sponsoring the techsnap program. Okay, Alan, we have to start with this uh, this hack this hacking oh. team zero-day stories that just keep coming out. Like, is this the fourth one on Adobe? This or? is the third one. Okay. All right, so... Uh, so, yeah. We talked a little bit about last week, you know, about the hacking team attack, and somebody broke in there and stole, what, 400 gigs of stuff? No, was the same. And... Uh, you know, in that we found that there was a flash zero day, which was big news. And, you know, uh, that resulted in Adobe on July 8th uh, releasing uh, flash 18.0.0.203, which would have been the day before last week's Mm -hmm, TechSnap. And so we talked about that and we're like, yeah, you got to go out and patch your stuff. Right. Uh, But then, uh, you remember, uh, after we talked about the story, the live chat room even found somebody posted on Twitter some uh, invoices they found in that 400 gigs of stuff of hacking team buying additional flash exploits. Mm. Uh, and so uh, on July 10th, Adobe uh, released a bulletin being, uh, saying, we've become aware of two more vulnerabilities uh, that hacking team had and was sitting on. Uh, one of them was reported by Trend Micro, and the uh, second one, uh, the credits in the notes there, Mm. Sorry, trend has it's, been all over uh, this. It might Fire be, Eye, uh huh. Yeah, I was just gonna so say. So Fire Eye found, reported one, and Trend Micro and uh, Slipstream ROL found the other one. Um, and so on the tenth, Adobe announced that they would have a patch this week, uh, and that patch came out on uh, the fourteenth. Uh, so your Flash Player should be eighteen point zero point zero point two oh nine. Okay. So even though you just patched your Flash Player, you need to patch it again. What a mess. Yes. Uh, and, you know, that's caused a little bit of confusion among users because they're like, well, I just patched Flash Players. They know you got to patch it again. It's like, uh, I mean, even like other people I was talking to, they're like, so I got the message in Firefox, your Flash is out of date, update it. So mm-hmm. I didn't update it and I restarted my browser and then it's like, your Flash is out of date. Yeah, it's like, no, I just did that. It's like, didn't I just patch that yesterday? <laughs> it's like, uh, it's, yes. it's actually that that happened again. Yeah. Uh, so this has started a number of different conversations about Flash. 
the first one is uh, obviously Mozilla took the unusual step of disabling Flash by default. Basically, you got a big stripey thing in the place where the Flash player is supposed to be being like, you know, are you sure you want to run this Flash? Uh, that was done so that somebody couldn't make a, you know, since one of the two newest vulnerabilities that just got patched uh, was already in the Angular exploit kit and on Metasploit, uh, meaning that um, the attackers could be using these and like pushing them into ad networks and drive-bys and so on, so that users would be getting infected without having clicked on anything or done anything. You know, and those drive-by download infections are really the worst kind because you can't really blame the user because the user didn't click anything, they didn't no, open an right, attachment, right, right. they just you know, we're browsing the website, not even necessarily a bad website because, you know, uh, the ad network sometimes uh, get tricked into pushing out bad flash files even on legitimate networks, like even Google's ad network and and the other big ones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And so Adobe disabled it by default, uh, so you have to click to activate flash uh, so that, you know, you could enable it to watch uh, a specific flash video if you wanted to. You mean Firefox disabled it by default? Uh, Firefox disabled it by default. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so this would basically, you could click allow on a specific video or something if you wanted to watch it that way. And I think I noticed but Chrome started doing this too yesterday. Possibly. Yeah, and, I, uh, and well, then I think I got when updated. There, when there's no fix for the vulnerability, <laughs> what else are they supposed to do, right? It's interesting how they all just move so fast on that too. You know, they Well, they had to. Like, it, if, if they waited, then, well, by today, it's not as required anymore because there's a patch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But so they had to act immediately to protect the users uh, until there was a patch. It's because, interesting that I yeah. guess it makes sense they can just re- remotely activate that. I wonder how that process works. Does, does Firefox mm-hmm. do a check in at some point and say, you know, how does that work? What is it? Is it checking in with some well, sort of? Well, I don't of- know. If, I think they just did it as a point revision, right? So there was just a new update to Firefox, you know, thirty-eight oh, okay. dot two or whatever that oh. did it. See, I thought in I'm Chrome, sure. I felt like in Chrome that wasn't the case. Maybe in Chrome, uh, maybe that is the case in Chrome. I don't use Chrome. I don't know how okay. it works. Okay. Uh, well, I don't exactly know how fly, uh, Firefox did it either, but I did see the big things, and it was like I had to click to to allow Flash. Yeah, uh, that might not necessarily be a bad thing to have on all the time. Yeah, uh, I can understand the you know, especially Google doesn't want that all the time because they make all their money off Flash based ads, right? Yeah, that's their biggest. Uh-huh. That's their big. Well, it's the one that makes the most money for them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and so even Firefox doesn't probably want to always have Flash click to enable. Hmm. Um, but it's definitely something that a user might want to set on their own thing. If you, know, if you only want to use Flash in a couple of specific uh, places, like to watch a live video stream, uh, then you know, clicking a button before you click play on the video is not that big of a problem. And it obviously stops all those big full-page ad videos that you can't, that you don't have to click to start playing. Yeah, because that is the core issue, is you can't really say we're at a point in time where uh, we don't need Flash. Because there is, like, live streams, for example, is pretty much Flash is the best option. Yeah, like, well, the fact that Firefox can't play H.264 on a desktop means that there's no other solution for video streaming at the moment right yeah Mm -hmm. and so it's and and so uh it's but at the same time though i feel like the conversation around flash and maybe this is going to fade but i feel like it's at a new fever pitch like there's a new momentum around killing it it seems uh yeah and and a lot of people be like well why isn't it died already and you know even krebs has done you know i tried for a month without it and it wasn't that bad Uh, you know i created a vm to run it for like the four or five things that i ended up actually needing it for over the course of a month Mm mm-hmm you know uh, something else I'll it, do is I'll sometimes mm-hmm. I'll have I don't do this very often, 
But sometimes I'll have a web browser like Firefox or Gnome Epiphany that doesn't have Flash, and then I'll use Chrome that is bundled with Flash. So if I have something I want to do with Flash, I just use Chrome for that. That's what I used to do, but now I just kind of use Chrome for everything. But that also works, too. So that's another right. way to kind of do uh, it. You know, I actually have three Firefox profiles on my computer <laughs> that I use in any one day. You know, one of them is just for our monitoring stuff, so I have like 100 tabs open. Uh, and if you did that with your regular f- session that does interact with other people's websites, it would be horrible. Do you, th- uh, do you think, though, do you think Facebook's new chief security officer calling for Flash to die when Facebook is filled with Flash? Do you think this is going to have any real impact? Well, I don't know that much of the Flash on Facebook is published by Facebook, though. Right, a lot of the Facebook games and so on right. are done in Flash. I'm thinking more like when, when, those you, when you upload a video to Facebook, Facebook, it re-encodes it and it has a little Flash player. You know, like ah, right, yeah. Although I, I don't know how often. I guess they do every time you upload the video directly to Facebook. They do that. Yeah. Um, Which well, regular users do a but lot. But for those ones, actually, you can do HTML5 because it's not a live video. So HTTP corrective download I agree, or whatever you could, just yeah, works. Yeah, you could. Yeah. Yeah. So you can that that's a case where flash could be replaced. Maybe they are. I know the they're doing that on that. they're doing that on mobile right now, so maybe they do. Yeah. Um so yeah, uh the Facebook CSO uh has well when I first heard the headline that he had made an official request or whatever, it, it sounded more but if you actually read the story it was just some hey guys, tweets. Hey guys. Hey guys. I just thinking about this and I wanted to tweet about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It uh, but basically news, it was like Adobe should announce an EOL for Flash and you know he's like you know, 18 months or whatever, I'm not being unreasonable here, but, and maybe, but really I think the onus would be on the rest of the industry to clean up their act and, and get solutions for the things that Flash can't do, specifically yeah. um, live video streaming, you know. MPEG Dash is kind of almost there, but if it if it's only works in WebM on every browser, then that's, that's a loss. kind of... A disaster. Not, never going to take off. There's, yeah, I mean, I don't, you I know, don't we know. We need H.264 and probably even H.265. Do, do we yet and it even, has to be available. Do we have any devices on the market yet, like mobile devices that have hardware decoding for WebM? VP, I don't VP8? think so. I don't think so. I think all the hardware uh, decoding is still know, for H.264. Yeah, and, and so, you know, Chrome does great for HLS on Android on, on mm-hmm. my Nexus 6, finally. Yeah. But... You know, I think the HLS support finally in Android is actually better than iOS. Oh, good. It actually handles problems better. Oh, good. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's like... But you have to be on Firefox the latest Android. to have HLS, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which nobody is. I happen to be blessed by the right device. <laughs> but, you know, Firefox really needs to get their act. And, and part of his problem is that, you know, H.264 is patent encumbered and so on. And, and, you know, the other half of the problem is that WebM sucks. Yeah. Um, have you encoded and, much in WebM? Have you actually had to? No. You, no, okay. Yeah, you've just heard our I've, horror I've stories. I've just heard horror stories, yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to be looking at it more because we're going to uh, be pushing fairly hard towards Dash to, to you know, answer the people that are like, you're not we don't want to do Flash. Me. You're but. not, you're joking. Really? So you might be doing, you might be offering VP8-based live streaming at some point? Yeah. Wow. Well, maybe, uh, you know, that would get people off because my we would bubble. have to, not because... We want to though. Every single, uh, every I would single suspect day. it wouldn't be as good though. Right, it won't. No, it won't. And be it won't H-264. play on as many devices. Right. No, you right. still and have like, to have both. Yeah. And then the the amount of CPU load to do the live transcode. If you send us one and we make the other one for you, on top of doing multiple bit rates. Right. That's so, uh, so the H two sixty four flash one will be ahead too. Because it because H two sixty four takes would, less time would, to encode. 
Unless you unless you still hold it well, back. See, the problem is you have to be able to do it in real time. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to encode one second of data in one second. So if WebM can't actually handle real time, it will just never work. Right? Because if I need to send you, if you're going to watch the stream for uh, uh, 10 minutes, I need to be able to send you that 10 minutes so of video I in to under have, 10 minutes. If I wanted to have a 60 frame per second stream, you would have to be able to encode at WebM at 60 frames per second? At whatever bit rate you want in less than, yeah, each second of video has to be able to encode in less than a second. Because if you can't send me a second of video per second, how can people watch it at one second? That's never second? going to work with WebM. <laughs> That's never going to work. This is kind of the problem. I mean, maybe if you have really amazing CPUs, and maybe it would now. I mean, I'm telling you, we're doing it on eight core CPUs. But and- your, your first problem is that Wirecast doesn't output WebM. Hmm. I suppose they might add it, though. I don't know. Right. Eventually, it's just, it's just I don't have the CPU a new overhead version to add that costs, Yeah, but yeah. in a new version of Wirecast, they cost more money, well, and yeah. that has new bugs and also requires redoing all your profiles or whatever. And yeah, it sounds about know, right. It, yeah. Well, while Flash has so many problems, the RTMP streaming protocol is the most reliable one. <laughs> and you know, something like MPEG Dash that uses port eighty or four four three and and just deals with. Uh, doesn't have problems with firewalls and so on, is good. The problem with anything like MPEG Dash is you're downloading a bunch of little chunks of the video. Right. So latency is going to suck, and if you don't do really long chunks, performance sucks. Right, and you get a hiccup in there, and, and then you start yeah. getting that weird look in the video and drop frames. and Yeah, and then it's just like, oh, how yeah. have we not solved this problem? Yeah. You know? Because we've been well, reliant on Flash, I guess. Have, well, it's not... No, it's it's more i think that it was h264 and so on right the the reason why flash is so popular for video is because it can decode h264 on any platform because adobe paid for the license mm-hmm. and firefox being an open source project can't pay for the license mm-hmm. they, well they could if they really wanted to but mm-hmm. that's a good point on well i guess flash's biggest or uh firefox's biggest problem is they can't they don't know exactly how many users they actually have to be able to pay for the right number of licenses Although I don't know how Flash does it either, right? Hmm. I, uh, I just going to sit back and wait for somebody to figure it out. In the meantime, I just keep getting yeah, crap every like, single day about we've been, Flash. We've so long uh, trying to get HLS to work, and it still doesn't work everywhere. And then we want to uh, replace it with MPEG Dash that has even worse uh, support on devices. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I don't know what we're actually going to do to solve this. Yeah. Uh, it's like what we really like is if it, you know the next good if H two six five just didn't have patents and was like here's a reference implementation everybody just do it and maybe you know, maybe VP nine will come along come along and save us I don't know yeah I I wish we could just use X two sixty four I wish we could just use that everywhere and call it good but we'll yeah. see what happens well, and it's like Firefox is like well we have H two six four decoding on Android mm-hmm. because it's provided by the operating system it's mm-hmm. like good for you but most people use their web browser on a computer <laughs> at least the one that needs flash <laughs> yeah well basically if you're trying to watch an hd video stream you're probably not doing it on your tiny screen <laughs> you never know but yeah uh, all right any other thoughts on I guess the other problem is hls was designed to solve a specific problem which is your ip address changing while you're walking around on your bouncing from cell tower to cell tower right well, if you're watching a video stream, most of the time you're probably sitting at one, in one location with Wi-Fi. 
Uh, you mean I can't maybe, fantasize about listeners driving down the freeway with like a tech snap well, on it, the back it, of their car? That's, they can do that with either the old-fashioned audio streaming or with HLS, sure. Mm-hmm. But for the other video stream, it's like a, a solid TCP connection, something like RTMP, but less mm-hmm. horrible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or more open, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. But I don't, you know, if it's not for mobile, who's interested in it, right? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Now that we're bitter. Uh, all right. Any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no, I think that's voting for that one. Now. All right. Well then, uh, let me tell you about our friends over at Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. That's where you want to start to get uh, a little, uh, off your phone or your service or support the show about $25 as a matter of fact. What is Ting? Ting's my mobile service provider. It's where I have my cell service and it's mobile that makes sense. You only pay for what you use. It's a flat $6 for the line. And then there's going to be some taxes depending on where you live. And then they just take your usage and add that up. Whatever you use, that's what you pay for. Minutes, messages, megabytes. It's very straightforward. And so if you want to use data, like with a hotspot, you just check the box in Android or iOS, and it's now it's a hotspot device. You don't have to have some sort of special plan. Oh, and they have no whole customer service. You can call them at one eight five five ting ftw and a real human being answers the phone. That's pretty slick. And I think that I've probably maybe been tempted to call once, but just about everything I've ever needed to do, from activating a new line, buying a new phone, disabling a device, transferring a phone to somebody else, I've been able to do through their online control panel, which is really, really nice. And they give a, they have a, in fact, if you're watching the video version, they have a, a picture of it here. Uh, this is really what their dashboard looks like, and it makes it so straightforward to manage your entire account. And just as like an example of one of the things that I love about the Ting dashboard is you go in there and you just you can set nicknames for each phone number because I got a few phones now. So it's only it's only six dollars for the line, and uh, sometimes I get one for free. Sometimes I pick one. Anyways, uh, so but I can't remember the numbers. I don't even know my own phone number. So I I went in the web page once, ages ago, and I added nicknames to each line, and those nicknames propagate across all of the Ting dashboards, like on the app for the mobile devices. If you use the the, the mobile web version, if you use the desktop version, those nicknames are everywhere now. It's really nice. I set it in one place, and it reflects it everywhere. And that's just a small example of Ting really has a great system to help you manage your account. But it's not just about how great Ting is. It's not just about the fact that they have a CDMA and GSM network that gives you tons of coverage, but also means tons of devices you can bring, and then you're really going to save a bunch of money. It's also... They have no contracts, and they have no early termination fees. You're just paying for your usage, and you're not in a contract. You're not getting locked in. And if you're in one of those duopoly contracts right now, Ting has an early termination relief program. They're going to help pay for some of your contract. And then you can start saving even faster. And they have lots of, lots of, lots of really nice devices. Like my new favorite phone, the Samsung Galaxy S6 Edge. What a machine. This thing is a monster. 16 megapixel rear camera is the best camera of any phone I've ever used. Beats the iPhone 6, in my opinion. The battery is pretty great. It supports two different wireless charging protocols. So I've got a charging pad right here off to my side. Uh, it has a, an amazing 2560 by 1440 resolution screen. It's unbelievable. Uh, it's like a 544 PPI display. Eight-core ARM processor. Three gigabytes of RAM, 2600 milliamp battery, and a five megapixel front facing camera. And it has, of course, tri band LTE. It is a great device. Now, that's the high end Cadillac on Ting, but they have a bunch of great value rigs too, like this brand new LG 450 feature phone. It's simplicity, yet it's super, super sleek. It's fast too. And they have a really good chip in this thing for $58, no contract, unlocked. You own it, and you only pay for what you use. $58. 
that's just great for an emergency phone, wouldn't it be? Or to, maybe mm-hmm. for a family member or a kid. Or check out this one. The Novatel MiFi 5580. Now, if you're a sysadmin, you're somebody in the support field, or somebody who has to have connectivity, why not get a tri-band LTE device? Connects up to 10 different devices at once. It gives you a little signal strength indicator, battery, tells you about your different connection strengths, which network you're on. $120 when you go to techsnap.ting.com. And then there's no contract, and you only pay for what you use. After you buy it once, it's a $6 hotspot, and you can even turn off the line for a little while if you don't need it. It's crazy, right? And then they have, of course, the new, just added, Moto E 2nd Gen for $122. This is a great phone. This is for $122. This is an unlocked Moto E. What a great way to get a fantastic Android Android experience. That's really awesome. And be sure to check out the Ting blog. They have an update on their Ting Fiber Internet Initiative. They're doing all kinds of stuff. So get started by going to techsnap.ting.com. Techsnap.ting.com. Try out their savings calculator right there on the front of the page. Put in your usage and just get an idea of how much you might save. You might be pretty surprised. I've said I personally have saved over two thousand dollars in the last two years. TechSnap.ting.com and a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program and thank you to our audience for visiting TechSnap.ting.com and keeping us going. We really appreciate it. Two hundred and twenty. What are we? Two hundred and twenty-three in. Holy smokes, Alan! We really do appreciate it. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me about this uh, RC4 No More site. Is this like a monitoring uh, system or what is this, Alan? Uh, no. So RC4 is a. Um is one of the oldest uh, crypto ciphers that we still use as part of HTTPS. Oh, okay. Um, and it was often selected in the past because it uh, didn't take as much CPU. So it was mm. less CPU than like it was uh, gentle on the server. So if you had a busy server yeah. or something, okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, for a long time, Google used it, especially for uh, things like uh, Google Docs and just stuff where. It, it was good to have some SSL, but it, it, it wasn't like critical, like you're logging. It wasn't like you were logging in and saying your password. Sure. It was just SSL for the sake of having SSL for mm-hmm. everything. <laughs> um, but yeah, so because RC, so before RC4, we used Triple Dash, which wasn't very strong, okay. but and was very heavy on the CPU. So yeah. RC4 was nice because it was faster. Um, but now that we have much bigger processors and we have you know SSL terminators that offload a lot of the work and so that it's not all done by the server that's actually trying to run, run the web app as well and so on, okay. uh, we had less and less reason to use RC4. So when it looked like RC4 might finally die, then there were new attacks against SSL and TLS that affected block ciphers. So remember the Beast attack? Yes. And there was one called Lucky13 and even recently there was Poodle. And all of these don't affect RC4. And so that caused RC4's um, popularity to go back up, right? It kind of moved back up the, <laughs> the, the list of uh, ciphers because all of a sudden it didn't have problems. It, you know, it was a way to still use older TLS without uh, running into Beast and so on. Okay. Uh, and so at one point, RC4 was like 50% of all sites had a preference for it. Uh, now it's probably about 30% uh, as more and more people push for the the new uh, higher-end ciphers, you know, TLS 1.2 and um, um, Perfect Forward Secrecy and so on. 30% though? It seems kind of high, but part of the other problem is uh, it's the most compatible cipher Uh other than like Triple Dash, right? Uh Uh So it's something that Windows XP supports, whereas Windows XP doesn't support much else. (laughs) I gotcha. And so on. And so, you know, even if it's the last resort on a lot of places, it was there as an option for that reason. Yep. Um, However, Microsoft and uh, with some others actually proposed RFC 7465 saying that RC4 should never, ever, ever be used anymore. Uh, and that's actually been approved by the uh, Internet Engineering Task Force and is you know, an official standard of the Internet now 
uh, kind of like the one we saw that killed um, SSL3. Uh, and this was published in January of 2015. So it kind of actually slipped under our radar uh, that uh, RC4 was dead. Of course, (laughs) when there wasn't a specific reason for it at the time, it it was just like, oh, we don't use this old protocol anymore. Why do we care? But specifically, it says TLS clients must not include RC4 cipher suites in their hello message, and TLS servers must not select an RC4 cipher suite when a TLS client sends such a cipher suite in the hello message. Okay. Uh, if the TLS client offer, only offers RC4 cipher suites, the TLS server must terminate the handshake, and the TLS server may send the insufficient security fatal error message. <laughs> uh, so, you know, according to the RFC, your, your server shouldn't even be willing to talk to anybody that only wants to talk RC4. Yeah. Uh, so that's the background. Now okay. on to the actual news. Yeah. Uh, researchers have presented a new paper at the Usenix Security Conference that details a new attack they've developed against RC4. Okay. Uh, because RC4 is still widely used 30%. in HTTPS. Um, also, RC4 was the um, encryption we used on WEP. Remember WEP? Yes, the, uh, yes. One of the first uh, <laughs> okay. Wi-Fi encryption. Jeez. And so a problem with uh, RC4 is that it has uh, this predictability bias thing where if you send certain pairs of things it's more predictable mm-hmm. um, and so that resulted in a, a bunch of different attacks against it one of them is one that made it possible to crack web keys uh, in a reasonable amount of time um, but RC4 is actually still an option for WPA as well uh, it's just not the default in a lot of cases because it has a bad reputation and so on yeah. um, but some specific types of Wi-Fi still use it as well so this paper covers attacking it against HTTPS and against the Wi-Fi. Hmm. Uh, so the the website that they linked here focuses mostly on the the website part of it, although the paper gets into the Wi-Fi part as well. This is the uh, this just, is the rcnomore.com? rc4nomore.com. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, so this is another one of those you know Heartbleed style sites, yeah. uh, and it yes. doesn't look like they actually build a a, gra- a logo for it. But no, but we do uh, have smiley this, faces. This one and... is fairly good, right? It, it's it's <laughs> a, a remember it's it's a fairly rememberable URL. Yeah. Although the the no more is actually a, a backronym as well, right? Yeah. Do you have the definition for it there? You can read off. Uh, not in this doc. I do have it. I think okay. in the, I do have it in the. Well, next... it's on the web page that you were scrolling. Oh, was it there? Oh, okay. I, gra- well, I actually sure. I grabbed it. To, I grabbed it for next uh, week's episode too. Uh, yeah, I did. But it, it's it, it, the uh, backronym numerous things. occurrences of monitoring and exploit. Oh, sorry, numerous occurrence monitoring and recovery exploit. Okay, <laughs> so uh, it's because the way the attack works is uh, you get the client to send the same message a bunch of times with the numerous occurrence, and then by monitoring that, you can recover the the original message. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, anyway, the flaw allows the attacker to actually steal your HTTP cookies, is, is the example they did. You can get any bit of information that might be uh, in the encrypted message, but they targeted the cookies because it was an easy example, and it's a way you can actually hijack somebody's account for an online service, mm. right? Uh, so uh, this might allow the attacker to be able to impersonate you, right? So if they steal your, your login cookie from uh, you being on Twitter, then they might be able to actually post a message as you on Twitter. Or initiate a transfer from your PayPal account or whatever. Right? That's always the example of the problem with stealing a cookie. So uh, the researchers behind the attack presented their uh, paper at Usenix Security and summarized uh, that an attacker can decrypt a cookie in about 75 hours it takes. Uh, In contrast to previous attacks where 
I think some of them it actually took like 2,000 hours to be able to break RC4. So 75 hours is not so bad. Uh, but this short execution time allows us to perform the attack like in, in practice. So unlike some of these other attacks that were just uh, theoretical, they actually, in their lab, managed to steal the cookie from uh, a laptop talking to mm. a server they control. Okay. Uh, so when we had tested the attack against a real device, uh, well, 75 hours is like the worst case scenario, they managed to uh, steal, to perform the attack in only 52 hours. Um, so the way it works is when a victim visits an unencrypted website, a regular HTTPS site, the attacker inserts some malicious JavaScript code into the website. So you go to visit some site that's not encrypted, and I inject a, a blob that you know says, oh, go grab this um, uh, chunk of JavaScript and start running it on your computer. <laughs> Because that's what websites do, right? Yes, very much these days. <laughs> uh, so, so onto some perfectly legitimate website that you're visiting, which basically any website you go to visit without encryption, I'm going to inject this JavaScript that's then going to make you start uh, with like Ajax queries, going and connecting to PayPal or somewhere, and start submitting uh, queries that I control, right? Because I, I wrote the JavaScript, so I make you send very specific queries that I'll be able to predict what the message you're sending is. Except you're also going to send your cookie that I, as the attacker, can't see normally, right? And the whole point of the HTTPS there is to hide that cookie from me. Uh, but basically by making your, the JavaScript send that uh, request with the cookie, uh, I think they did about 4,500 times a second. <laughs> so this is actually basically ends up performing a denial of service attack against the service yeah, right. that you're checking is. But... but Anyway, so they make you encrypt your cookie in an HTTP request and send it 4,500 times a second. Then by monitoring those uh, and comparing them, they can use the predictability in RC4 to eventually uh, brute force and guess your cookie. Mm. Uh, so they say, to successfully decrypt a 16-character cookie mm-hmm. uh, with a success probability of about 94%, takes roughly uh, nine times two to the power of 27 uh, encryptions of the cookie. Okay. Uh, since we were uh, making the client do 4,450 requests per second, that would take about 75 hours. Uh, if the attacker had some luck, less encryption would be uh, need to be captured. So in their demonstration, in 52 hours, they were able to execute uh, 6.2 times two to the power of 27 attacks, and from that were uh, able to get the right Hmm. plain text hmm. uh, generating these requests can even be spread out over time uh, right they don't have to be captured all at once because uh, obviously you might notice if your computer was sending these requests constantly yeah especially if it's uh, going to really work the CPU yeah uh, during the first step of the attack the capture requests are uh, transformed into a list of 2 to the power of 23 likely uh, cookie values so they figure out you know what are the most likely values of that cookie uh, all cookies in that list can then be tested in about seven minutes. Uh, the only problem is here, it, I think this would be very obvious to PayPal if somebody was sending them 4,500 requests per second and then started spamming them requests for uh, trying different cookies and so on, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, if it's not something they've specifically protected against previously, right. uh, you know, we've seen, what was it, Apple's uh, lost my iPhone password reset or whatever had no rate limit and people just pounded on it for weeks or months yep. until they... Brute force people's through. passwords. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they say, and uh, they say in the paper we not only present the attack against uh, HTTPS but also talk about WPA TKIP, 
Uh, their attack against uh, WPA takes only an hour to execute and allows the attacker to inject and decrypt arbitrary packets. Uh, so it would actually allow you to add additional information, basically inject evil JavaScript into an encrypted website or also just decrypt uh, the packets and be able to sniff passwords or whatever. Evil JavaScript. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Hmm. Uh, but it also says, you know, uh, in their FAQ on the page, they talk about comparing it to some of the previous attacks. And they mentioned, like I said earlier, that all the previous attacks took at least 2,000 hours. Hmm. Uh, and this one only takes 75. Ouch. So that's uh, a pretty big improvement. That's a massive but improvement. One of, the, one of the later, more recent attacks, I think, it took somewhere between 300 and 500 hours. Hmm. But even that, you know, compared to 75, that's quite a bit. Yeah. Especially if you can spread it out over a amount of time. And as always, Alan uh, dug up the, the uh, source paper and has linked yep. it in the notes. If you want to uh, peruse it yourself, you might be hardcore like that. And they're actually, yeah, well, it, it's, it's fascinating. Interesting stuff. research. Yeah, really. Exactly. And to see just how they lay it all out, and even just to see how they present it is kind of educational in a way. So uh, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, look for episode 223 of the TechSnap program, and then down past the video and the download links are all of the show notes where Alan has noted all of this. Any other thoughts on that one, Alan? No, uh, it's just uh, interesting. You know, I'm not sure about the practicality of this particular attack. If you're not the NSA, then maybe how are you doing the man in the middle? But as we always say, if you could break the Wi-Fi using this in about an hour and then yeah. start injecting packets, you could actually probably do it against people. Right. Um, at the coffee shop well, type and, thing. And so. re, what if you revisit those those numbers in, like, say, three years? How much how much time is that gap enclosed then? Right. Like, it, it, well, yes. So hopefully the fact that RC4 is supposed to not be used anymore uh, will actually happen RC4 by three years from no now. RC4 no more. RC4 yes. no more. That makes a good chant, Alan. Uh, yes. So nice job on the backronym that one is actually not bad yeah uh they did have to use multiple letters from one word in a couple of places <laughs> but yeah. you know we have a doozy um, next week we have a yeah, doozy ne- next week there's a doozy of a, of a backronym <laughs> so yeah <laughs> plus right. it's a little bit meta too it's, yeah, it's, it's awesome it's really awesome okay well let me uh, tell you about something else that's awesome that's our next sponsor it's DigitalOcean. go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code of power snap ocean that's the tech snap promo code to give you a ten dollar credit over at digitalocean.com and then you can try out their five dollar rig two months for free if you're not familiar with DigitalOcean, let me educate you they're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server they have an entirely SSD-backed infrastructure, so you're going to get great I.O. They've picked key data center locations, and they have a really great system. And what's amazing is the value. You, and, and they don't just value, and not just in terms of cost, but also in terms of your time, which is the big one for me. You can get started in less than 55 seconds to spin up the machine. And for that, and, and that just right there is a huge time saver. I really appreciate that. But yep. here, then, then, you get to the, then you get to the value of the price. For $5 a month, you get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte. A terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and a great one in Germany now. And their interface that make all of this possible to bring it all together is amazing. It's super intuitive. It's really, really well built. And that's where I want to come back on this time savings things because it's really fast to do things like take snapshots before you make a big change or do a, do a template-based machine copy so that way I don't have to reset up the whole software stack or it's very simple to transfer or do one-click deployments of applications. And they're not using like some sort of proprietary bogus um, like panel management system to push packages to your rig. They're using open source 
normal, to, like Docker and Doku and, and, and all of these standard technologies that just work with the underlying operating system. And when you deploy a system, it, it's already all t- uh, hooked up to all of the repos for that system. So that way you just get updates right from – it's not like you all of a sudden now have to get special updates because you're installing packages using their management. You know, I, I have been down this road before where vendors try to create this system for you and they build it all together and then it becomes like this weird system that's a hybrid between a mainstream Linux distro and something where you have to push packages using their control panel. Nothing like that over DigitalOcean. It is such a great system. It's so well designed and you really got to try it. That's why we have the promo code SNAPOcean. Give you a $10 credit. You try that $5 rig two months for free. They have free BSD. You can play with Fedora, Debian, Ubuntu, CoreOS and just go deploy like the LAMP stack or something or Ghost. What a neat blogging platform, Ghost. Just write your Ghost, uh, you write your blog and Markdown and publish it immediately. No more crazy CMS to really have to worry about for the most part. And if you use that promo code SNAPOcean, well then, and remember, that's one word, lowercase, you get a $10 credit, no credit no credit card required. Also, DigitalOcean has a bunch of great resources to make your use of their infrastructure more, more, more valuable. I love this one, Alan. How to automate the scaling of your web application to DigitalOcean. Now, see, DigitalOcean also has hourly pricing available. So if you have a busy day, you need to just scale a little bit for a few hours or for a couple of days. What a great way to do this. Or how to create a blog with Ghost and Nginx. Now, there's a good one. So many great ones. Combine those two. So you have your blog on a $5 droplet, and it's not expensive for you. But if you get popular on Reddit or whatever and all of a sudden have all this demand, you can use the... Uh, DigitalOcean API to spin up a more expensive higher end instance to take some of the load. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as people are, once your website's not too busy, you can just turn it off and you only pay for the hours when you needed it. I love that. And that API makes it so straightforward to do that. There's, and there's good code examples out there of, whole, of how to do that already because the community just eats that API up. So go to digitalocean.com and use the promo code SnapOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Alan, yeah, before. And- yeah? Right. But I was going to say, before we run, I wanted to give them... We are getting so, so close to BSD Now 100. Yes. And uh, we won't be here... Uh, well, we won't, we, see, we won't be live next week with 99, but we'll be back for 100. Wow, cool. Mm-hmm. That works out really well. So if you go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, our code is your code, episode 98 of the BSD Now program hit. You can grab this, the HD uh, version. One of our interviews from BSD Can with uh, Zinuous, oh, cool. uh, the company that bought uh, the existing customers of SCO. Uh, so they have giant customers like McDonald's and so on <laughs> that run SCO on their point-of-sales terminals. And they're uh, replacing all the SCOs with uh, FreeBSD 10. Oh, wow. Nice. Uh, so they're basically they're going to offer a 10-year support version of FreeBSD. I bet, uh, I bet that made for a great episode. So mm-hmm. uh, you grab the HD version right now, and then that's this is about the halfway point of the TechSnap show. So by the time TechSnap wraps up, your download will probably be done, and then you don't have to have like an Alan Jude withdrawal. You just go right into the next show, and you use more Alan Jude. And BSD Now is usually a pretty long show, so you'll get a fix for a while. Uh, so that's over at JupiterBroadcasting.com, BSD Now, episode 98. That's Wow, 98. That's amazing, Alan. That's mm-hmm. really nuts. Okay, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or, even better, starting a thread over on our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com like Bacon Zombie did for our first question this week. And he writes in, he says, Anybody have a recommendation for denial of service protection service? The place I, start, the place I started with is getting hit by lots of DDoS attacks. Anybody have any recommendations for mitigation tactics or services? Alan, do you get this question very often? 
A little bit. Um, and then one day I was at BSD Can. Uh, I guess it was 2013. I was in the pub. I was just sitting there minding my own business. And some guy comes up to me and is like, hey, you know about denial of service tax a bit because I used to run an IRC shell provider. Which yeah, is like, it happens the, all the time there, right? Yes. It was basically a magnet for script kitty denial of service type attacks. Uh, and he's like, would you mind coming to EuroBSDCon and giving a talk about how to mitigate those? And I'm mm. like, ah. This was uh, right after the cyber bunker, you know, Cloudflare was all like, oh, the biggest denial service yes. tech ever. Yes. Whatever. So it was in the news, so they wanted to talk about it. <laughs> okay. So I did want. So I just, uh, I linked my slides here. Mm. Uh, but there are a bunch of different companies that make a bunch of different ways to do this. Um, and so uh, my slides talk a little bit about the pros and cons of a couple of those different uh, companies and products and so on. And then talk about how I do it on the cheap. Although it really depends what kind of attacks you're getting and uh, what your situation is, which type of these will work the best for you. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, it, it can depend a lot on scale, and but also on the type of attack, right? Because, uh, you know, the attack could be they're just sending as much traffic as they can and knocking you off the internet. In that case, filtering hardware is probably not going to help you, right? Because if they're maxing out your internet connection, you're screwed. Yeah. Whereas if they're just breaking your web app by sending too many requests, then you know a web application firewall that says, "Oh, that's an invalid request. Let's block it before it gets to the web server." Doesn't end up overloading your application anymore. So it really depends on the type of attack that you're getting, and how important it is that you stay up, and or you know if going down for ten minutes at a time is okay, uh, and then you know mitigating after that is fine, or if you need to be up all the time, or uh, basically how many zeros you want to have on the check you write every month <laughs> for the protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for hardware, uh, there's thing, Arbor Networks makes this device that does you know profiling and trend analysis and automatically attempts to detect uh, patterns of traffic that are known to be attacks okay. and so on. Yeah. Uh, you know, Checkpoint and Cisco and, and Fortinet all make denial of service protector appliances. Uh, but again, if you're if it's a volumetric attack that's maxing out your internet connection, then a firewall box on your end of the connection isn't going to do any good. Then you have the other mitigation methods, like you know, a lot of ISPs will just null route traffic for your one specific IP address that's under attack. This takes you completely offline, but it stops the attack from mm-hmm. harming all of your neighbors, mm. uh, which is better for the ISP and not so good for you. Yeah. Um, so then you have things like protected hosting, where you can rent your dedicated server or whatever at a place like uh, Black Lotus or Staminus or Shark Tech or whatever and they have network level protections or basically 100 gigabit versions of those firewalls uh, and they use those to protect your server Mm -hmm. and hopefully have enough transit that it's a lot harder to knock them completely offline. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, Or you have what I call protection for hire. (laughs) so there's a couple different ones. Uh, if you have like your own uh, range of IP addresses uh, and you're doing like BGP routing, then Prolexic, which is actually now owned by Akamai, one of the big CDNs, uh, they have PLX Router, uh, which basically they will announce your BGP routes uh, from their Anycast network all over the world. So all your traffic will actually go to them first. Mm. Then they will uh, scrub the traffic and clean it up. And then they make uh, like a, a GRE kind of like a VPN tunnel back to your real servers and send you only the clean traffic. Mm. So your real servers end up not actually necessarily directly connected to the internet. Basically, you keep their IP addresses secret. 
and the attackers hit all the PLX, the Prolexic servers, and they scrub the traffic and then tunnel that traffic back to your real server. Hmm. Uh, and it can also be asymmetric. So all the outbound traffic, all your uploading from your website, actually comes directly from your website, your servers. But all the inbound gets filtered through the Prolexic stuff. So it doesn't add quite as much latency as if you did symmetric tunnel where on top of getting all the packets uh, over Prolexic, you have to send them back that way. Uh, then there's the PLX proxy, which is only for HTTP or HTTPS uh, specifically. So this is where they use basically like Varnish or some HTTP accelerator type thing. And they scrub the attack as it comes in and then they forward it to your web server and the response ends up going back through them. So it can be slightly slower than mm. not having the protection. Mm. And then, you know, uh, DDoS arrest, uh, which is started by uh, one of the original founders of Pier 1, I think. Mm. Uh, they're pretty big. And uh, Cloudflare has something. They're more of an application proxy. Um, they're really only for low-end stuff. And they do nasty things like inject error pages with their logo on it and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of these... It's cheap to sign up when you're not under attack. It's like, oh, it's $100 a month or whatever. Uh, but if you call them on the phone while you're under attack, <laughs> they want $10,000 uh, and so on. So uh, it's definitely better to set this up, something like this, before you under attack. Um, Prolexic is what Krebs uses because his att- site's been attacked many times. Hmm. But uh, it can be rather expensive. So it really depends what your... Uh, what you're willing to put up with and how much uh, you can handle and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so depending on the type of attack, you can do uh, what we call simple failover, or simple failover or a hidden spare where you just have a second copy of your website somewhere mm-hmm. that you can flip to when you're under attack or whatever. Mm-hmm. And depending on how the attackers are set up, Either they will have resolved the address once and are attacking your IP address specifically, in which case if you can update your DNS and point to the second web server, your visitors will still come to the right web server. Uh, Or if the attacker is using the DNS and following you specifically for when you do that, um, then you have another method I dubbed (laughs) whack-a-mole. I like that. Where you have quite a few spares and you just flip between them. Yeah. The whack-a-mole attack or uh, approach. Yeah. And, and so all your traffic goes to server A and the denial of service attack takes it out and then all your traffic goes to server B and visitors hit there and then eventually, you know, after somewhere between 15 minutes and an hour or a day or whatever, the attackers flip to attacking server B or are still attacking A and B maybe. Uh, and then you flip to C and eventually you can go back and they'll have given up on A to use the capacity to attack D and you can switch back to A and you can just, you know, run in circles around them. Uh, the problem is that your website's not going to be 100% reliable during that, and depending on what your what kind of business you're in, mm. that might not mm-hmm. be acceptable. Mm-hmm. And then you're paying for a prolexic or whatever. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, Alan, uh, never let it be said that you can't have a very long and very accurate and very detailed answer to a very short question. That was a two-sentence oh, question. The one other one was the <laughs> sinkhole. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was okay. one other option. All right. So if you know, <laughs> if, for example, all the bots that are attacking you are coming from China, yeah. you can... If you use a GUIP-based DNS thing, like okay. uh, um, the one I described in the uh, EuroBSDCon talk the year before, or something like Amazon Route 53, or lots, you know, uh, DNS Made Easy has one. Everybody has one. Mm-hmm. Um, you can say all the servers in China go to 127.001, mm-hmm. and everybody else in the world doesn't. 
uh, and maybe that can get most of the bots just to leave you alone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Uh, and so that's another option you can have. That's a nice quick. That's a nice little quick trick if it, if it doesn't affect you. Yeah. Yeah. Or you know, mixing that with whack a mole and some other stuff and so on. Mm-hmm. There you go. And Alan linked the uh, PDF to his talk on this in the show notes yes. if you want to read um, through the slides. Sadly, the videos from EuroBSDCon that year never surfaced. Uh, the organizer kind of disappeared. <laughs> Nobody know what happened with the videos. So somewhere uh, out there is a video so of no video presenting, but it never may never see yeah. the light of day. But uh, the slides are there, and that's uh, okay. the most important stuff is all okay. there. Okay. Uh, Chris writes in, uh, not this Chris, a different Chris, about Wi-Fi security. He says, hello, Alan and Chris. Uh, from uh, listening to TechSnap, I've learned that security is very important. From time to time, you mentioned security vulnerabilities in routers, backdoors, and so on. That made me rethink my home, infra- home infrastructure, which now looks like this. An old Dell Inspiron Mini 10 is now connected to the Internet with Ubuntu Mate on it. Uh, he's added uh, the, uh, the easy firewall setting, and he has it turned on. The laptop creates a hotspot for his other laptops, and he, he connects them over Wi-Fi. He says, what do you think of this setup? Does it seem like a good, secure setup or not? Your thoughts, Alan? Um, it should be fine, except for, you know, what if you want to use your laptop for something else or want to have, what do you do when that laptop's turned off and a couple of things like that. But it works well enough. Um, I'd say stay, just keep patched. Yeah. Right? Whenever uh, you opt like to in general, a- th- that's, that's fine, except for the fact that, you know, that laptop's kind of pinned down now. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, um, if you get... Uh, some off-the-shelf router that can be DDWR-keyed or have FreeBSD installed on it, uh, then, or you know, you buy a device from like NetGate or somebody uh, from the PFSense store that has Wi-Fi, uh, then you get to do it still in the same form factor, right? Yeah. Uh, so yes, using computers for your router and firewall is great, um, but some people would prefer to keep the little form factor that uses less power and doesn't make any noise. Uh, and you can get devices like that that run open-source software. My big but, disclaimer uh, what you're would doing be, works good enough. My big disclaimer would be just remember the more complicated the amount of the more complicated the software on the computer, the more exploits there potentially could be. Uh, the more things you need to keep patched. Right. So just stay on top of your updates because you're running a full Ubuntu desktop system there, uh, which means there's a whole range of things somebody could potentially uh, right. yes. really execute. Obviously, and exploit. Yes. Your actual router probably shouldn't also be your desktop, but you only have so much hardware. Yeah, in this uh, case and at the same time, that's why I'm saying, you know, having your laptop be the thing that provides Wi-Fi. It's like, well, I need to reboot my laptop, but on this other machine, I'm using the Wi-Fi to do something I don't want to interrupt, right? And, yeah. and you end up feeling like, ah, I wish I had a dedicated device for this. Right. Uh, so, but I think it'll be okay. It'll work from a technical yeah, standpoint. That works, uh, but things like that uh, TP-Link uh, WDR mm-hmm. 3600, it costs 40 or $50 on Amazon, and you can install DDWRT or FreeBSD on it. And uh, it's got uh, 4.2.4 uh, and 5 gigahertz wireless N and does G and has all the stuff and has two USB ports so you can even add extra storage to do other stuff with it. And mm-hmm. It seems like a nice platform. So uh, Java Jake writes and wants to see if we can help him get better internet routing. He says, hey guys, I'm a long-time listener of TechSnap and Last. I think I've listened to every episode from the beginning. Anyways, here's my issue. I'm contracting for a company in Cambridge and need to sync a significant amount of data with the office there, and I'm working out in the middle of nowhere, PA. If I connect directly through the VPN or SSH, I'm limited to download at the top speed of about 14 kilobits. I have found, however, that if I do a port forward and push my SSH and my rsync traffic through my DigitalOcean server in New York, I'm getting over 100 kilobits, which I still think is maxing their upload in my download. Is there any more straightforward way to force my connection to take a faster route? Hopefully by the end of the year we'll have better internet connection on both ends, but in the meantime, it'd be nice to have something that was more usable. Oh, and if you have any suggestions for keeping the data synchronized under Linux, that would be really helpful, too. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the good work. Java Jake. 
Um, a couple things. Um, specifically, the uh, the part of the problem of doing SSH is that by default, SSH has a fixed window size mm-hmm. and doesn't automatically scale. So if you're going somewhere, uh, he didn't say which Cambridge. I don't know if he means in the U.S. or in the U.K. Probably even in the U.S. If it's in the U.S., yeah, it's in the U.S. That's pretty bad. I think it is, uh, but you know what? I I uh, I don't know if he did. So he might have said because I did I did cut part of the email down. Okay. But I don't know if he did. Uh, but. Uh, well, he's using a DigitalOcean server in New, New York. York instead of London, so yeah. maybe it is in the U.S. Yeah. If it is in the U.S., it's less of an issue. Just um, The problem with the fixed window size in uh, SSH is that um, on a long-distance connection with a higher ping, you're going to get a worse transfer rate. Right? Basically, you get bandwidth delay product. Uh, it's kind of a solved problem, but because SSH was fixing his window to avoid getting a lot of buffering and delay, it would cause on really high latency connections to get really bad performance. Mm. Uh, so there is, uh, in newer OpenSSH, there's uh, a patch called HPN, or High Performance Networking, that fixes this and let TCP do its thing. Uh, and I found with that, I went from getting 2 megabytes a second to getting 25 megabytes a second wow. over SSH on a gigabit connection. Whoa. Yeah. Or even more. You know, I, I push 500 gigabytes of data around over SSH all the time. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that can make a big difference. Um, although, when he, he talks about through the VPN, I don't know what uh, protocol he's doing on the VPN, but mm. that uh, mm-hmm. it can be hard to say for the VPN as well. But for SSH, uh, making sure you have SSH with the HPN patches on both sides will probably make a big difference. Uh, and then just making sure you have uh, big, fat uh, socket buffers so that you can get uh, more data queued up so that you're maxing out that pipe the whole time. Yeah. Uh, you know, for file transfer sessions, that's great. For interactive, not so much. So it's something you have to play with a little bit. Uh, there's not really there's not really a way to force your connection to use the better route. Uh, I actually had this problem. There was a, a fiber cut between Toronto and New York last week, and it was causing me some headaches while trying to play games at night because mm-hmm. uh, the server I was trying to get to was in Washington D.C. and so it went through New York to get there, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, I actually got so fed up that I created a VPN from my house uh, to a server in Chicago um, and routed only my traffic to the game server through it. And then it went around New York and went directly to uh, Virginia. And it meant that uh, my connection to the game worked and I didn't have the 25% packet loss anymore. (laughs) Uh, So I hacked around it. That's funny. Uh, But yeah, as the end user, you have no way to control the route that your packets take. So the VPN is really the only way. So bouncing off your DigitalOcean server might help. Um, you might also try just on your DigitalOcean server, try doing the rsync directly there and see what the speed's like. And if it's really a lot higher, yeah. then you might actually be better off staging the files, right? Transfer them from Cambridge to your DigitalOcean and then to your house from there. Uh, I remember I used to do this when I had a, a dial-up connection uh, and I wanted to download big files. Um, I would actually download them to my server, which had like a 100 megabit connection, and then I would download them from there over my dial-up, partly because it was so close, the latency was a lot better, uh, and I could basically saturate my 56K connection. Of course, it would still take 26 hours to download 350 megabytes. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Miserable. Miserable. Yay, dial-up. Uh, well, well, he's talking about getting you know yeah. only... 100 uh, kilobytes per second. It's well, painful. 14 kilobytes per second is still five times dial-up, or three or four times dial-up, but... Yeah, isn't that sad? 
Okay, Alan, I think you actually know this next one. Uh, Idram from the chat room, I think I was talking to you. Uh, yes, we were talking to you last night. Yeah. He says, I need a KVM crash card adapter that works with the recent release of Linux. Current adapter's interface program is very old and doesn't work on Ubuntu 14.04 or later. The use case is connecting my laptop to a SIG server and watching them boot or perform work on otherwise not possible over a remote console connection. I need to be able to plug a device into a server's VGA or USB ports, be able to watch it boot up, and type on a console terminal using my laptop when I'm done, unhook the KVM adapter, close the rack, and move back to the next host that needs work. So, yes. what do you think, Alan? I, yeah, so he links as, he's using a StarTech one right now, Yeah, uh, but StarTech has been, was said, like, well, we're not really interested in updating our Linux driver for this device that I don't even know if they still sell them actively. Why does it uh, need to have but, a driver? Why isn't it just a hidden device? Because basically, it connects to your laptop over USB. And then it presents a virtual monitor oh, and oh. a virtual CD-ROM drive and the keyboard and so on, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I've never actually tried to do that specifically because that the most of the data centers I have access to have consoles uh, there. We have a, well, we have a yeah. Basically, we have a crash cart that's literally a cart with a an LCD monitor yeah. and a keyboard and a mouse and like some, maybe a screwdriver and like some pockets for screws on it or something like that or whatever. Like, yeah, and and it's got a built-in power bar. Yeah, uh, and an extension cord. So basically. this turns your laptop into one of those. Yeah. So you're using your laptop a, screen and keyboard as the console screen, as the server screen and keyboard. Well, you get you run the software and you get like a window yeah. that is yeah. a view of the screen yeah. and lets you when you type it it goes into the server. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he says uh, they offer Fedora and Ubuntu packages, but they're all from like 2013. Yeah, it's a typical start I think. Them. Yeah. Uh, well, Star-tech. at least they bothered with Linux once, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And he says he's tried running the Windows version under Wine, but it doesn't seem to work very well. And he tried passing through the KVM adapter USB device into a virtual machine, but that didn't seem to work either. Um, what about just so using yeah. an actual serial port? Well, serial's not the same, and most times the BIOS and stuff that, like, yeah, he's yeah. basically dealing with the serverware to the point where it won't boot. Yeah, he wants to see the BIOS. And he needs to fix it, and you need to see the BIOS and the stuff that okay. happens before the OS. The other problem with serial is that it has to be set up in the OS. And it's usually not by default because so you might use a serial port for other like, stuff. It so. seems like the long-term solution would be a KVM in the rack that you just hook a monitor and keyboard up to. Is this not possible? Yeah, but that, that's if you if you have literally thousands of servers, yeah, yeah. It's, it's easier to have. Yeah. So that's true. To that point, uh, Lantronics makes this thing called the Spider or Spider oh, Duo. Okay, uh, and basically it's a little device, and it has USB and VGA in one end, and then an Ethernet on the other end, and it's actually an IP KVM. Ooh, yeah. So, at, uh, at, like at our data center in North Carolina, if my server goes bad, I put in a ticket and I go on the uh, list, and then uh, when there's one available, I get one of these. They have like eight of them or whatever for the whole data center. Uh, they go and hook it up to my server, set it up, give it an IP address, and mail me the IP address, my username, and password. I log in and I can remotely control my server. Yeah. And then when I'm, I have a maximum of 24 hours or whatever, and when I'm done, I can tell them and they this give it to the next nice. person. So then it turns, uh, it turns it into a temporarily, to an IP-enabled KVM. It actually KVM. does an IP-KVM one, so you can even do it remotely. Yeah, that's um, great. Now, he just wants it for his laptop, but, you know, he could locally connect over the Ethernet port to this device, uh, and it also gives him the flexibility to do other stuff. Yeah. Looking at it on Amazon, it's actually slightly cheaper than the thing he's currently using. <laughs> oh, really? Uh the downside is it requires uh, the the client is in Java, and so you know it's even under Linux that might not be that great. Uh, I've only ever used it on Windows. I don't know, like the IPMI client for uh, that's in Java for some of my servers. 
it has a Linux version, uh, or it, it's written in Java, so it's supposed to work on every operating system, but it uses native code for Windows and, and Linux, so it doesn't actually work properly under BSD currently. Uh, but yeah, the spider thing works kind of nice because yeah. uh, because it just uses an Ethernet connection. You don't necessarily have to have a driver on the laptop, so it's easy to plug it in just any laptop. Yes. Uh, but it does use Java, so you end up having to install some software anyway. But it's but not, it also means no driver on the server. Right. Well, uh, the the other one doesn't require a driver on the server either. It connects with a USB port mm, and, a, okay. and a VGA cable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so it's what's not also f- interesting is on servers Amazon. starting to not have. VGA port sometimes. Yeah. Is that getting more common now? A little bit more common, yeah. Hmm. Um, although not so much because everybody's KVM and everybody's crash cart are VGA. Yeah. Like I remember when I had my Bitcoin uh, rig yeah. in a rack at the data center, we got there and then realized that, oh, this thing has six DVI ports but no VGA. Yeah. Uh, luckily, one of the data center techs happened to have a VGA to DVI adapter in his car, and he let us borrow it. Idrim's in the uh, chat room right now, and he says he has tens of thousands of servers at work. So, yeah, this yeah. would be something that, you know, you could float around, Idrim. Ah, okay, don't, don't say it, though. Uh, he, you know, this is something that could be floated around, and I love the idea and of you could use it locally devices. or remotely. Of course, um, one that wasn't meant to be an IP KVM and actually does more like what he was originally looking for, yeah. you would expect to be cheaper. Because yeah. it wouldn't have to have as much software and stuff. But I feel but like you're buying the one. The problem with the USB f- connection, uh, the problem with using a USB connection in the laptop is then you get very specific about drivers. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Ethernet, you, it's a lot more generalized, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And it's a lot more flexible in where you can use it and what you can use it for. Yeah. Uh, all right, so there you go. If you'd like to email the TechSnap program, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, and choose TechSnap from the dropdown, or go to our subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com, and we love answering your questions. Anything kind of sysadmin, hardware, networking, security, you name it, we'll talk about it. But yes, if you know of the right device for this guy, please let Email us know us. so we can pass it on. Yeah, maybe you've got a cheaper, better one, or maybe not cheaper, but a better one. We'd or, love to you know, it. one that you tried and know is bad. Yeah, or yeah, or, or the other flip side of the one that's been in production and worked really well for you, too. Those are always exactly. nice to hear about. <laughs> yeah. You can set all of them in. I managed to get a, an AvoSent 16-port um, IPKVM for uh, the rack here, and it's quite useful, although I've yeah. heard other people complain that. If you leave it on for too many months at a time, it'll just hang. And then, oh. you know, when you go to use it, it doesn't work. And then you have to try to reboot it. And it's like, well, I bought this thing so I could purposely not have to be at the data center. And yeah, that's that could be a problem. I call them Avacent, but you're probably right, Ava. I don't know. Uh, all right. Well, that wraps up the TechSnap feedback segment. We'd love to get your feedback. And with that all done, it means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on on your own, and some of these links came from our powerful subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. I love this first one. Guess what? It's a Java Zero Day. The first Java Zero Day in two years is being exploited by Pondstorm hackers. Pondstorm hackers? Uh, it's just the name that the uh, trend yeah. micro came up for love with it. the group. Uh, so they called them Pondstorm. Uh, I'm sure there's a story behind the name, but anyway... Uh, but yeah, so there we've, we've had uh, Java patches lately, but most of those were you know where researchers found a problem and, and sent it to Oracle and they fixed it before anybody was actively exploiting it. Yeah, and then maybe an exploit came out for it after, and if you hadn't updated, you would be in trouble or whatever. But um, this one particularly is uh, somebody has an exploit for Java that Oracle hasn't fixed yet, mm. uh, or I think they, they might have fixed it now, like today, but a week ago it wasn't fixed. Um, and so it's the first time in two years where we've actually had Java Zero Day. 
and it just happened to be happening at the same time as the double flash zero days and, oh, wait, and yeah. all this other craziness. This is the one where we heard about it redirecting its to trend micro IP address. That's what this next link is. Uh uh-huh. The second one. The yes. second one is related uh, to the first story, yeah. Yeah. So uh the Pondstorm guys are uh kind of sick of trend micro yeah. researching them and posting stuff about <laughs> so them. The- so the uh, the attackers added the tra- uh, some trend micro IP addresses as contr- uh, command and control servers yeah. in their uh, bot code. Uh, it's not sh- it, uh, trend micro is not sure why uh, they're like we don't know if they're going to try to claim that they hacked those servers and that they're actually command and control or something, but they're not. Uh, we're not sure if they're trying to do it to like do a distributed denial of service attack against us or something, or to get our IPs a, on a blacklist. I think it's a middle maybe. finger. Oh, maybe that might be it. Yeah, that might be it. Yeah. And a bunch of stuff like that, just to, probably just to give Trend Micro a hard time. Probably. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of funny. Or it's like we know you're watching. Mm-hmm. Here, let us make it easy for you. Have a copy of all of our commands. Yeah, well, they, yeah, that's yeah. Like, here, yeah, here's a copy yeah. of all. Of, yeah, now just get your packet dump yeah. going. Yeah, here, have all the packets. We, we're pretty sure you won't be able to do anything about it. Uh, all right, Alan, this is ripped from our earlier one. We mentioned it before, but now we're going to move it down to the roundup. Facebook security lead wants Adobe to say publicly when it's going to end Flash. Not just let's do this, but set a date, Adobe, and let's actually do uh, it. So far, all I've seen is Adobe announced that in uh, August of this year, uh, the long-term support version of Flash will switch from 13 to 18. Uh-huh. Hmm. So no. No, uh, no date yet. Well, uh, I, I don't know that Adobe really has an interest in ending Flash. Yeah. Uh but I think 18 months is probably too uh, aggressive a timeline. Um, you know, it'll take longer than that for new standards to come out to replace some of the functionality of Flash. And uh, the interesting comments on on Slashdot and so on were like, "No, we must leave the ads in Flash. So they're easy to block. If they just build them into HTML5, it'll be much harder to block the ads and not <laughs> other stuff." That's kind of a sick and yet somewhat twisted way that's accurate to look at it. <laughs> Um, Alan, you grabbed uh, a podcast uh, by uh, uh, the Security Through Education guys with HD Moore. They say, don't scan me, bro. Don't scan me, bro, which is a kind of a riff on the don't tase me, bro, obviously. Yep. Uh, so what do we know about this? Uh, so it's the Social Engineering Podcast, and uh, they've been trying for a while and managed to get HD Moore, who's uh, the head researcher over at the com- uh, Rapid7, which makes Metasploit and so on. Mm. Uh, so it looks like it should be a cool interview. Yeah. So we'll have a link to that if you guys want to check it out in the show notes. I like this one. Back to the hacking team. Uh, the FBI, turns out, has been using hacking team to unmask Tor users. Now, this is coming out through, via invoices and emails in that 400 gigabyte mm-hmm. dump that Alan mentioned earlier. And there's a product that hacking team was selling to the FBI called Galileo. Ooh, isn't that neat? Now, here, I grabbed a few bits of interesting details here. Nice. Uh, so... <clears throat> They say here that uh, the FBI uh, would contact uh, the uh, the hacking team and ask them if they could help track down a Tor user. They, and it goes something kind of uh, like this. They say, in version 8, one of your engineers told us that the scout can reveal the true IP address of a target using Tor. Is that still true with your latest version? If not, can you please provide us a way to defeat Tor on that box? And it goes on to talk about what they would do is hacking team would then work back and forth, kind of like a get a work order set up with the FBI. And then they would snag the target's computer, maybe like through many different methods and displaying malware, whatever. And then they would get the IP address over to the FBI. And they also talk about in here how they wanted to sex up their products because they realized that the FBI was only using their Tor-busting products for, like, low-level investigations. And so they wanted to add more buzzwords like VPN-busting, one-click-less infections to make it more sexy so the FBI would buy more of their services. (laughs) Yep. 
Yeah. So the FBI is paying them plenty. I think the total number out there is pretty nuts. I didn't grab it, but there was like a huge number that came out. Uh, hey, you got a, you got you got a very interesting story here from the Netflix blog, Alan. What's this? Yeah, from their tech blog. Yeah. So it's tracking down the villains outlier detection at Netflix. So it's actually telling a story of one that happened recently. Okay. So it's two it's two a.m. in the morning, and half of our re- reliability team is online searching for the root cause of why Netflix streaming isn't working. Mm. None of our systems are obviously broken. Everything says everything's fine, uh, but something is amiss, and we're not finding it. Uh, after an hour of searching, we realized that there's one rogue server, server out there in our farm that's causing the problem. Uh, we missed it among the thousands of other servers because we, weren't, we were looking for a clearly visible problem, a server that says something was wrong, mm. rather than looking for uh, the insidious deviant. Uh, so, so, so then they uh, add a little bit of marketing here. They're like, in Netflix's Marvel Daredevil series, uh, Matt Murdock uses his heightened sense to detect oh when a gosh. person's actions are abnormal. Uh, but anyway, so they look at um, they say the Netflix service currently runs on tens of thousands of servers, and typically less than one percent of those are unhealthy in some way. For example, a server's network performance might degrade and cause elevated request uh, latency, or an unhealthy server will respond to health checks, and you know maybe one of the drives is dead, or it's uh, the drive is still kind of working, but it's returned corrupted data, and so the you know the client gets the video and they can't decrypt it because it was munged or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, but they say a slower unhealthy server is worse than a down server because uh, it effect is small enough to stay in the tolerances of our monitoring yeah. system. Yeah, it's hard to see. Right? So it's a little bit slower, but it's not so slow to necessarily say something's wrong with it. Yeah, yeah, and stuff like that, right? Uh, or you know, some clients are reporting an error, but we always have some background level of problems because people's internet connection or they're trying to do it on Wi-Fi or it's got to be the, one of the hardest things to know when it's their problem or on your end. I mean, you know that it's somebody do a streaming yeah. video. It's very hard to troubleshoot that kind of thing sometimes. Yeah, streaming video is extremely difficult because there can be like ten different causes, and only one of those is my fault. <laughs> <laughs> and so you kind of assume it's one of the other nine mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Netflix talks about actually finding the outliers. So like the look at errors per server. And you just see this graph, and it's like, well, looking at that, sure, that one purple line goes a little higher than everybody else, but it's not necessarily obvious what the problem is. Yeah. Uh, but then when they look at this other graph, it's like, well, that one just has a lot of colors on it. <laughs> How do we? And so they call it finding a rabbit in a snowstorm. <laughs> I like that. Because they have one of their bases in Colorado, so they have a lot of people. Anyway, uh, it solves the problem. We use cluster analysis. And uh, which is an unsupervised machine learning technique. Uh, the goal of cluster analysis is to group objects in such a way that objects in the same cluster uh, are more similar to each other than those that are in another cluster. Hmm. The advantage of using an unsupervised technique is that you do not need to, uh, to have labeled data and so on. You don't need to try to create a training data set. Hmm. So they talk about how it works and how it can find the problem. This is pretty smart. Mm-hmm. And then once it does, it can email or page a service owner or, you know, remove the server from service so that uh, it'll stop taking requests until somebody can fix it. Mm -hmm, uh, Or, you know, gather forensic data to let you know what maybe is causing the problem or whatever. Uh, So they say, to assess the effectiveness of our technique, we evaluated the results from a production service uh, with the outlier detection enabled. Using one week's worth of data, we manually determined if a server should be classified as an outlier and then be remediated. Uh, we have cross-referenced these servers uh, with the results of our outlier detection system, uh, and they found that you know they were ninety-three percent correct with the eighty-seven percent recall. 
uh, when testing about 2,000 of their servers. Wow. So our current implementation is based on a mini-batch approach where we collect a window of data and use this to make the decision. Compared to a real-time approach, this has the drawback that outlier detection time is tightly coupled to window size, right? If you don't have enough data, then uh, you, you know, the noise can make it look like an outlier when it's not. Yeah. If uh, you have too much, your detection time suffers because you have to uh, go through all that data. Uh, and so they're looking at improving their approaches now by levering, uh, leveraging advances in real-time monitoring using things like uh, the Netflix event stream processing system called Mantis and the uh, Apache Spark streaming uh, mm. system. <coughs> huh. the, uh, uh, and they talk about some more stuff. The chat room uh, uh, informs us that the uh, rabbit in a snowstorm is another Daredevil reference. Uh, they, uh. Yeah, and they provide documentation. It appears that episode one might have been called that or something. There you go. So they're chocked full of uh, tongue-in-cheek with that uh, post. Very nice, yeah. Netflix. Nice of them to share that kind of stuff. Good insights, too. Yeah. Uh, I, I just I don't have a lot to say on this one because I've just started reading this today. But it, it, it's it's so ridiculous. Uh, this comes from TechDirt. Uh, software used also to monitor... so predictable. Yeah, it's also so predictable, yes. Software used to monitor UK students against radicalization has been found to guess what? It'd be exploitable. Oh, that's right. Uh, the Imperial monitoring agents themselves come with an actual threat, thanks to what TechDirt writes as laughably cliche security fails within the software design. Imperial has, a power, has power over its clients' data, whether stole, stored on PCs, servers, or, or the children's personal belongings. If compromised, it could expose reams of information on pupils, teachers, and students as a whole. And it looks like, uh, of course... They didn't really take any serious con- uh, consider sec- software security very seriously. Impero set the software up so that the password between the students' devices and the servers was password. They made the mm-hmm. password password. I'm sure somebody was supposed to change that and just didn't, <laughs> but that's freaking horrible. Yeah, it is freaking horrible. So now you can get access to all these computers. I mean, it's it's nuts. And of course, but there's. I don't think. Every student in the UK shouldn't be subjected to have everything they do make sure that they're not being radicalized. The part That's of, such a pseudo-threat. I know. People don't, it's like, radicalized. It's, it's, it's really bad. And uh, Impero didn't handle this very well either. Like, when people started talking about it, they sent out cease and desist. They had stuff pulled off of <laughs> GitHub. Like, they totally, they totally, like, manhandled the, uh, the response to it as well. So, uh, TechDirt has the whole article. It's a good read. Um, now, Alan has a good post from Tau Security. Defender's Dilemma versus Intruder's Dilemma. Yeah. So uh, here's the first slide there is talking about the Defender's Dilemma. Where So the intruder's a wolf and the defender's the sheepdog and then the <laughs> victims are a bunch of sheep. Yeah. And it says the intruder only needs to exploit one of the victims in order to compromise the enterprise, right? Uh, they just have to get one sheep and then they're in, right? So as a defender, you, you have to be able to stop every single attack. Otherwise, they get in, right? Yeah. Uh, Whereas the intruder's dilemma can also happen the other way around. If you're the intruder, the defender only needs to detect one of the indicators of your presence in their system True. in order to uh, initiate their incident response and lock everything down. So logs, snort, firewall monitoring, any problem, yeah, anything. Yeah, virus scanners, F-Secure. You trip something. Uh, yeah. So they, they do all these different defense and depth things. And if you trip one of them, they're going to come down on your ton of bricks, cut off the internet, and make sure you can't touch anything or access any data and keep stay offline until they've made sure they got rid of all of you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the defender's dilemma is something we've talked about even with, like, terrorism, right? There was, like, uh, the terrorists 
only have to get lucky once, right? Whereas the defender has to get lucky every time to make sure that it never happens. Mm -hmm. But the same thing can be, uh, you can take it the same from the other side. If you have defense in depth and are watching all the different things in your network, uh, all you have to do is get that first hint that somebody's already made it into your network and you can cut them off before they can do anything. That's the hope. And so as the intruder, you have to be very careful to try to stay hidden. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, uh, it really fits in with the, when we were talking about uh, Kaspersky getting hacked, right? And Kaspersky was like, Thanks for all they the kind info. Of almost cited the intruder's <laughs> dilemma. It's like, you guys, why would you go after us? We're, we're going to be watching for it. And, and now we have all of your stuff. Yep. We know, we know all these fingerprints about you, and we're going to make it that much easier for everybody else to detect you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for all the info, in other words. <clears throat> yeah. Well, Alan, that brings us to the end of the TechSnap broadcast. If you would like to make this show a little better or throw a story in here you'd like to hear us cover, you can go to techsnap.reddit.com, submit or vote or comment there. You can Ooh, also There's email a great us. comment on that story at the end there. This is, uh, of course, the intruder's dilemma is similar to the defender's dilemma. It's just a special case of the defender's dilemma. The intruder must defend his intrusion in order to improve his chance of success. It's true. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, we're not all that different, I guess. So, uh, also, you can join us live. We won't be live next week because we're pre-recording, but just check jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. In fact, for travels and stuff, you never know. We might be doing some doubles coming up soon, and we'd love to have you join us for those sessions because we get to hang out with the chat room all day long. It's really cool. Let's go to uh, jblive.tv for the live experience. Uh, we normally do the show at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom! You can also go to jblive.info to get the audio-only versions or just download the show on demand. It does come out every single week, at least for 223 weeks in a row so far. And you can get the RSS feeds and subscribe to it automatically or just search maybe your favorite podcatcher on uh, your phone or something. Boom! I bet you were in there. Just look look for TechSnap. And you know what? Listen to us every, listen every week. Why not? It's like, it's, like, uh, it's like veggies. It's like veggies for your brain. But not like veggies that taste bad. Like there's butter and cheese on them, and I even fr- I even like grilled them on the barbecue a little bit. So they're pretty <laughs> delicious veggies. So they're still good for you, but they're veggies too. You know, like I mean, yeah. Uh, maybe there's something in there. You guys just you guys work with that and send it into the show. Just go to TechSnap and TechSnap at Jupiter Broadcasting. I'm working on the slogan for us. Okay, we obviously need to improve it. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode. See you right back here next week. 